It's a joy to be able to bring the word to you this evening. And so to that end, if you would, please, let's open our Bibles and let's turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. And we'll read the word and then we'll say a brief word of prayer. And then we will get into the message. So Psalm 45. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 45, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My song is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteous uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would take these words and that you would pour them into the the inner depths of our hearts and the inner depths of our lives. Oh Lord, we so desperately need your word. We so desperately need to be fed as children who are hungry. And you tell us in your word that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be satisfied. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would fill us with the righteousness of Christ satisfy our hunger as only your spirit can. We pray that to this end, you would bless and glorify your name in our midst. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Among the most uh, challenging portions of the scriptures, I think that we can probably say that the book of Revelation ranks quite high. It's a book that is filled with all sorts of fascinating imagery Uh, It's giving us a window into the future, but it gives us a picture of that window into the future in sometimes somewhat uh, obscure imagery. 
You know, there are times, I think, when we're reading that book where it may seem more like a J.R. Tolkien novel because it's filled with dragons and demons and winged creatures as they're flying about. And in fact, uh, when I was first in my pastorate a number of years ago, somebody said, hey, why don't we study the book of Revelation? So I said, okay, you know, no problem. Let's, let's go ahead and dive in. I said, but let me tell you what, <clears throat> it seems a little bit intimidating, so let me first study it. Well, nine months went by, and I thought, okay, I think I finally have an idea as to what's going on here. And since then, I've taught through that book three times, and yet I still don't know exactly how I would preach it, at least not completely, because it seems to be so challenging. That being said, one of the things that I ran across as I was studying the book of Revelation was this, is that if you want a Reader's Digest version a simplified version of the book of Revelation, then we just read it in Psalm 45. Psalm 45, we could say, is the book of Revelation in miniature. It is ultimately about the wedding that transpires and unfolds between Christ and his church, the bride. And what we've just read is that account. It's, if you will, the book of Revelation in miniature. And we see, of course, the wedding feast of the Lamb unfold with much greater clarity in the book of Revelation. But we can say that from a distance, in a sense, certainly in terms of time or in terms of the number of pages that we see unfolding in the scriptures, we get a glimpse of Christ's wedding to us, his church. And so what I want us to do this evening is I want us to take a closer look as to how the psalmist unpacks the nature of Christ's uh, wedding to us, his bride. And first, I want us to do so by looking at the groom. I want us to see what the psalmist has to say about the groom. What types of characteristics mark him? And what kinds of actions do we see attributed to him? Secondly, I want us to see what the text has to say about the bride, uh, what it has to say about the church. And in particular, I want us to see what the text says about how the bride is dressed. This is an important element here, that we take note of the bride's dress. And then third and finally, we want to see what the author has to say about the bride's conduct. How does the bride conduct herself? How does she act? How does she carry herself uh, on this, her wedding day? So let's give thought to that. The groom, the bride, and then the bride's conduct. But first, of course, we want to look at the groom. Now, if you take note at the superscription here to the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, it's a love song. He says it's a love song. Now, there are countless love songs that have been written in the history of the world, but more specifically, we could probably think of a number of love songs that have been written that are set in that wedding context. You know, I don't intend to give you an earworm that will stay with you for the rest of this evening and tomorrow, but, you know, I forget the artist's name, but back from, say, the late 50s or the 60s, going to the chapel and we're going to get married. You know, uh, th- that's one of those songs. Well, the question that we want to ask ourselves is, is what is it that sets that wedding song and any other kind of love song that we might think of apart from this particular love song? Well, what, it, what sets it apart, I think, is, of course, is that this love song 
is about Christ. It's about Christ's love for his church. But then conversely, it's about the love of the church that the church has for Christ, the bridegroom. Now, why is it? Why is it that the bride has such a great love for the groom? Well, we begin to see this in verse 2 where we read this. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, notice this. We can see first and foremost that the groom is handsome. He's attractive. And this is something that shouldn't strike us as being that odd. You know, it's like when you see a wedding ceremony, one of the things that you're going to observe is as you see the groom standing up at the front of the church and as he's flanked by his groomsmen, they're going to be properly attired. Most occasions, you know, I'm sure you could Google and YouTube a few inappropriate wedding, wedding uh, scenarios and you would find them there. But, you know, they're going to be dressed in their tuxes. Uh, they're going to be shaven or at least, you know, trimmed up if they have a beard. Their hair is going to be quaffed. They're going to look special. Why? Well, because of a number of reasons. They're going to be taking pictures. And not only will there be pictures, but the groom wants to make sure that he looks his very best for his bride. So you are the most handsome of the sons of men, says the psalmist. But the psalmist is not extolling the beauty, or dare we say, we could say the handsomeness of the groom. It's not just that he looks attractive. I think what captures the psalmist's mind and his heart is the beauty of what he does. The beauty of what he does. He says, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse two. And what is it that that this grace does that is upon his lips, as we see here in verse 7, it says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What the psalmist is saying is that your lips are anointed with grace, and you are using your lips to speak forth words of gladness to those that are beyond you. You are speaking words of joy to those who are in your midst. You are speaking words of kindness. You are speaking words of love. You are speaking words of grace. I suspect all of us at some point or another have been around people that we think just aren't edifying for us. You know, you think, well... I love that person, but I don't know if I could stand to be around them today because that person is always negative. They are always bringing up criticisms. They're always reflecting upon how the glass is half empty. They're always filled with words of gloom. I don't know if that I could stand to be around that person today, so maybe I will decline their invitation. But on the other hand, how many of us have been around people that we think, I love being around that particular person because they're always so cheerful. They're filled with joy. They always have a smile on their face. They always have words of encouragement. You know, I can think of several people that I've run across in my, in my life, and there's some that I think, they never seem to be sad. 
I mean, I don't know what's wrong with them. Maybe the problem's with me and that I just need to be more cheerful like they are, but they're always a source of encouragement. Well, beloved, it's not simply that the groom here is one of those subtly dispositioned people, that they're always happy or cheerful. Rather, what the groom is doing is he's speaking words of grace. He's speaking the words of the gospel to his bride. And it is the words of the gospel that bring joy. It's the words of the gospel that bring the forgiveness of sins. It's the words of the gospel that bring peace in the midst of the challenges of life. And this is why the psalmist says that God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions because this grace flows from his lips to all of those that are around him. But it's not just that he speaks words of grace, as much as of blessing as that is. But we also can see that the, the groom here executes justice. We read in verse 3 that the groom bears the sword upon his thigh, and he wields it, according to verse 4, for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. So that what the groom does here is he protects his bride. He protects her with the sword. And not only does he protect her, but he defends her and he brings about justice against her enemies. He brings about righteousness for the cause of truth and meekness. These are words that should resonate in our minds Because they're the words that Christ later invokes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so here, it's the Messiah. It is Jesus. It is the bridegroom that defends his bride that not only speaks words of grace and truth to her words that bring life, but he also defends her and he executes justice upon her enemies so that though she be meek, she inherits the earth. And though she may hunger for righteousness, she is satisfied. And so... This mighty king, this anointed who speaks kindness to his people is the the Messiah. Verse 2, that God has blessed forever. Verse 6, it is his throne that is forever and ever. These are all words that resonate and that simply uh, echo uh, the promises that God gave to David when he told him in first first Samuel, sorry, second Samuel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The important thing to note here, I think, is that it's more than just the description of the groom's beauty. But rather, the psalmist is captivated not only by how handsome the groom is, but by what the groom does. You know, I can remember as a child, my parents had a, uh, a record player. Most of you know that what that is. For you youngsters, you're going to have to Google it. 
but uh, they had a comedy album that I would sit and I would, you know, put it on the record player and, and uh, I would say press play, but you didn't do that. You know, you'd pick up the needle and, and set it down on the record. And I can remember listening to this, this comedian where he made the observation. He says, beauty may be only skin deep, but he says, ugly goes all the way to the bone. And I think what we would want to get from that is not just simply a comment about one's external appearance, but rather there's a sense in which we should not ultimately be concerned simply with appearances, but rather recognize that what makes a person beautiful is what comes from within. It's what type of character do they have? How do they act? How do they treat people? And in this sense, we can say that what the psalmist says about the Messiah as the bridegroom is that his beauty is not merely skin deep. His beauty comes from within. And it's a beauty that enables him and equips him to speak kindness to his church, to the bride, to give truth, to act in righteousness, and to wield justice, both in the defense of his bride, as well as in the execution of judgment against the wicked. And so these are things that cause the psalmist to admire the beauty of the king. Verses 7 and 8, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Here, the the groom is beautiful not only in appearance, not only in what he does, but also in his garments. And that not only are they beautiful garments, but they are uh, effulgent with with spices and these uh, beautiful odors. Okay, so if this is the nature of the groom, what about the bride? Well, one of the things that we should note, and I I can't say that I have universal experience on this because I'm sure there are going to be exceptions to the rule. But for the most part, in all of the weddings that I've ever observed, whether in film, whether uh, videos, uh, or whether in those that I've attended or officiated, or even the one in which was my own wedding, is that the bride is always dressed in a manner that matches the groom. You know, I've never seen a wedding where the groom is dressed in a tuxedo in his very best, and the bride comes in in a tank top and cutoffs and flip-flops. I've never seen that. Now, I'm sure you could probably find that somewhere on the internet. You can find just about anything on the internet these days. But what we should note here is that as beautifully adorned as the groom is, the bride that the psalmist describes is equally, equally beautifully dressed. We read in verses 13 and 14, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. So notice there's a sense in which we can say that the bride is dressed as beautifully as the groom. Her robes are glorious. Now, we might immediately think about weddings in our own cultural context. And again, I'm sure that there are exceptions to the rule, but in this particular case, most of the time in our own culture, the bride or the bride's family provide the the dress for themselves. The bride might buy her own dress. 
uh, or the bride's family will buy the dress for their daughter. That's not what we would get from the rest of the scriptures. It's not that the bride has somehow purchased her own opulent gown. But rather, if we take a clue from other portions of the scripture, say, for example, the prophet Isaiah, listen to where the the garments originate in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. For he, the Lord, has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah the prophet says, It is the Lord, it is Yahweh, who gives unto his saints their beautiful dress, their beautiful clothing. And the clothing is likened unto uh, the, 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 the garments of a beautifully dressed groom or of a beautifully dressed bride. And they are likened unto glorious garments. Well, whose garments are these? But we would say that in Psalm 45, that the bride is dressed with the robe of Christ's righteousness if her robe and her gown looks just like the groom's robe and and, and clothing, and they are of similar nature, and if Isaiah says anything to all of this, it's that Christ, the bridegroom, gives unto us, his church, his bride, these beautiful garments of salvation. These beautiful garments of salvation. The book of Revelation shines even clearer light upon this whole wedding feast, where in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, John says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. But note, then he says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. These deeds that we possess are given to us by Christ. To put it in very simple terms, Christ buys us our wedding dress. Christ provides our wedding clothing. And he does so through his life, death, and resurrection as we receive the robe of his imputed righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that when God looks upon us, he does not see a sinful bride. He does not see us burdened with our guilt. He does not see us stained with sin, but he only sees the perfection of Christ's righteousness. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following her behind her, says the psalmist. But there's another dimension that I want to add to this that I think is implicit in the text. And and I want to illustrate it with two anecdotes, which at first may not seem like they make any sense whatsoever. But bear with me. There's a method to my madness, I promise you. Not always, but most of the time. The, The first is this. These are not new glasses. These are old glasses. This The prescription that I'm wearing is two prescriptions ago. 
And uh, it's been a big frustration because I went, went to the eye doctor, uh, the, you know, do the whole eye exam, you know, this whole silliness. Uh, number one or number two? Uh, number one. Uh, number two or number one? I had I, I, several times. I was like, "Well, I don't know. They both kind of look crummy, but if I have to pick between one of them, number two, you know." So by the end of the process, I finally got it, got my prescription, got the glasses a week later, picked up the glasses, and then for the next week, tried every which way I could. And I'm like, "I can't see squat with these things. I don't know what happened. I can't see squat." And I was frustrated beyond. Uh, beyond measure because I was thinking to the Lord, Lord, I need my eyes. I got to be able to see the screen and I can't see stuff. You know, so I went back and uh, got my, I got a new prescription and they checked it again and they're like, yep, this one today is different than the one that you got. Well, praise the Lord, let's get the new glasses. And so I'm waiting for them. So I'm having to use old glasses. So right now, some of your faces are, uh, are a tad blurry. Okay. Second observation Yesterday, I did the inadvisable. Uh, I had to do yard work. And it was hot. <laughs> oh, my word. You know, and I was thinking of Adam. And I thought, Adam, if only you had not sinned. Because I'm not ser- simply working with the sweat of my brow. It was the sweat of every single part of me. I, I pointed to my wife. I said, look at my hat. I was wearing a hat, you know, to, to cover up my thinning spot. It's not a bald spot. I tell the kids all the time, it's not a bald spot. It's a thinning spot. And sweat was running off the brim of my hat. I was that soaked. And then at one point, because I was having to dig something up to plant something for my wife, I had a hatchet and I was going at it. And I said, not only am I tired, but I'm so sweaty. You better stand back because I'm afraid that I might let loose with this hatchet And we're going to have a Jeremiah situation where I lose the axe head and I might lose it in the wrong place if you catch my drift. So she stood back. What does all of this have to do with anything? Beloved, when we see the description of the bride, the beauty of the bride is not only in what she is wearing, but in the overall health that she possesses. The psalmist speaks of a glorified bride, a bride That doesn't need glasses because every weakness, every frailty, every ailment that we have has been demolished by the glory of God so that we are made whole. We have no illnesses. We have no injuries because Christ has glorified us. Moreover, not only do we have no ailments anymore, but we no longer have to work by the sweat of our brow because the curse will be gone. We will be redeemed as we stand in the presence of our bridegroom, fully glorified, fully removed of every weakness, every ailment, and every single last vestige of sin. In the words of the Apostle Paul, 
We read of our glorified state in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, verses 25 and following. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's not that we will be beautifully adorned, but beneath those glorious garments that we'll be hiding the sweat of our brow or that we'll be hiding the scars and the blemishes that we've accumulated through life from the illnesses and the diseases and the injuries that will all be done away with as we stand whole, complete, glorious and righteous in the presence of Christ, our bridegroom. So if that's the nature of our glorified state... Thirdly, what about our conduct? What does the psalmist say about how we as the bride of Christ respond? Well, we see in verses 10 and 11 some words that echo Genesis 2.24. And in Genesis 2.24, remember that as, as Moses describes marriage, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his bride. Well, those words echo in verses 10 and 11 when we, we read this. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. It's to Christ, our bridegroom, to whom we owe all of our allegiance. You know, in other words, we are completely and totally captivated with Christ. That's the description of, of, of the bride. And that we don't look wistfully back upon our past, but we only press forward as we keep the eyes of our faith firmly fixed upon Christ. You know, in, in the church in where my wife and I were married, uh, I, you know, stood up here uh, at this point because the, the sanctuaries were laid out similarly. I stood up here on what would be my left. And then I, I can't say that I was flanked by my groomsmen. I only had one groomsman, my brother. So I was frank, flanked by my brother. And I can remember that the back doors of the church were closed. Uh, you know, so that once they seated everybody, they closed uh, the, the door. And then as they began to play... Uh, you know, and they, they fired, the, the organist fired up and the bagpiper fired up. We had bagpipes and the, they played uh, Highland Cathedral. Uh, that my, is what my wife came into. And uh, as, as they played that, then the doors swung open. My eyes were fixed to those back doors because I was waiting for her to come out. You know, partially in joy, partially in terror. In the sense, joy, I can't wait to see her. Terror, I hope she shows up. <laughs> You know, you don't, you don't want those doors to open and somebody to go, <laughs> nobody's here. And I can remember her slippered foot came around the corner. She wore white satin slippers that day. And, you know, as her slippered foot came around the corner, and then I saw her, my eyes were glued to her face the whole time that she walked down the aisle. I couldn't tell you who was sitting on this side, who was sitting on that side. I didn't see anybody. I just saw her face. And I was so happy. Is that how we are with Christ? Are we so overjoyed at what he has done for us? How he has saved us? 
how he has loved us when we were not attractive, when we were marred and stained by sin, and how, in fact, we can say we even hated him. And yet he showed us love. He spoke tenderly to us and he saved us. Are we so fixed upon him with the eyes of our faith that everything else in this world just fades away? It's not important to us. I'm not saying it's of zero importance, but it just pales in comparison to the joy that we get in beholding the face of Christ. It's this type of devotion that I think that causes the bride in verse 17 to cry out, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. The bride is filled with praise for her groom and king, so much so that she broadcasts the greatness of who he is and what he has done. You know, I don't know about you, but there are many things in life that we get excited about and we like to tell others about. You know, perhaps maybe it's a, you know, it's a new article of clothing. You think, hey, take a look at this. I got a really good deal on this. Maybe you, you got a new car and you're excited to tell your friends or family members, hey, look at this. This, this is such a, you know, I'm so excited about this. You know, or, or around here, you know, we've been in Mississippi now for three years. And one of the things I discovered in moving to Mississippi is that a lot of people, I don't know what they're called, but they have these four-wheel drive golf carts. It looks like a golf cart swallowed a four-by-four. And, it, you know, these things, and I, I see them at Home Depot, and uh, they're, like, more expensive than my car is. <laughs> it's like they're just, you know, really, really uh, fancy kind of four-by-four golf carts. I don't know what you use them for. I guess hunting and other stuff. But, you know, you, you get one of those, and you're like, hey, look at this. Isn't this great? Or Ole Miss or Mississippi State, they win the game, win the championships. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear? I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. But what I do want to ask us is, if we're excited about those things and we so quickly and easily tell others about those joyful things, do we get excited and joyful in telling others about the wonders and the glories of the salvation that Christ has given unto us? That we tell people, do you know what Christ did for me? Do you know how horrible of a sinner I was? Do you know how deep his love is for his church? I'm so excited. I want to tell you, my family, within the four walls of my house, and I want to tell the nations. I want to tell the nations. To all generations, verse 16, she ensures that she has many children and that they know of his praise. In other words, whether at home or beyond the four walls of your house, the bride publishes words of praise for the king, her groom. If we have words of praise and excitement for all of these other things in our lives that pale in comparison to the glories that we've received in Christ, should not we all the more be filled with those same words and more for Jesus, our bridegroom? Beloved, I I pray that this psalm fills you with praise and worship for Christ, our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would meditate upon the joys of our marriage to Christ. Christ has redeemed us, and so we are spotless without blemish and thus worthy of our perfectly holy and righteous bridegroom. 
We have no need for shame because he has prepared us. He has made us ready. But I think at the same time, as much as we enjoy all of those blessings, we should also look forward with great hope, eagerness, and anticipation for that great day of the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we will sit down and we will sup with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we will feast in the presence of the Lamb, clothed in his righteousness, whole and complete, and with the saints of God seated around the throne of God, we will say hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you have taken us, adulterous people that we are, and you have saved and redeemed us. You have clothed us in the robes of your son's righteousness, and you have anointed us with the spirit of gladness and of joy. You have made us through Christ and your spirit spotless, without wrinkle or blemish, And so we give thanks unto you, O Lord, for what wonderful manner of love is this, that we should be considered the bride of Christ. We give thanks, O Lord, and pray that we would meditate upon these truths, that you would fill our hearts with joy for Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, and that we would want to publish the knowledge of his saving love for us far and wide. We pray, O Lord, that in this way that you would fill us with joy. You would give us peace knowing that our sin no longer stands against us. But that you would also fill us with hope, O Lord, for many of us eagerly await that day. The last day when the last trump of the blast shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. And we shall be clothed in righteousness even furthermore as we receive our new bodies And we sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your presence. Oh, Father, bring that day. Hasten that day, oh, Lord. For many of us, we suffer in the moment. And there are difficulties and challenges, both in circumstances as in body. Oh, Father, we pray that you would deliver us but fill us with that hope, knowing that one day, even potentially one day soon, we shall sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb and sup with you, our triune God. Until that day, O Lord, fill us with peace, fill us with hope, and fill us with faith and love for you. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.